So today in James, the passage that Samantha read is really a passage about prayer. Um, if you were to boil the whole thing down and summarize what's James talking about here near the end of his book, he's talking about prayer. And you see it right from the beginning in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise, which seeing, seeing praise is in some ways just a, another way to pray to address God. And then in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So this whole section is really instructions on prayer. And, and what James is saying, especially there in the beginning, is no matter what situation and whether you're, whether you're not doing well, if you're suffering, you're in a difficult season, pray. Right? If you're cheerful and, and content where you are and really trusting the Lord's provision and God has you in a good spot right now, pray to God and sing songs of praise to him. If you're sick, you're physically ill, call to the elders and let them pray over you. So in all of this, no matter what stage of life you're in, the instruction James gives is to turn to the Lord in prayer. Now the rest of this passage gets a little bit technical. And just kind of a, a warning this sermon that this, this morning is that this sermon is going to be a little technical, a little theological, but I want to explain why I think that's important. Um, because sometimes when we, we start talking about theology and kind of asking hard questions that the text presents, sometimes it can kind of seem um, maybe a little boring or not quite as interesting. But technical things are also important things. I'm going to give you an example of that real quick. Um, kids, are you listening? Kids, have, raise your hand if you know who Scott Gordon is in this room. Any kids? Okay, Scott, go ahead and stand up so everyone can see. This is Scott Gordon. He is one bad dude. Just look at him. Will you, will you flex a little bit for us, Scott? No? <laughs> okay. Scott's a, Scott's a fireman in Richardson. And there's something really, I think, is really amazing about Scott is that if we were to bring him up here and give him a whiteboard... He could draw a map of the entire city of Richardson from memory and label every single street, every creek, like from absolutely blank slate, he could draw a entire map of the city of Richardson. Now, we probably wouldn't do that because it would also be kind of boring to watch, don't you think? I mean, like, well, as impressive as it would be at the end, in the middle of it would be kind of like, <laughs> a bunch of lines, right? A bunch of words. It's, it's not something that's real fun necessarily. But those technical things, maybe they're not so fun, but they're important because knowing that map in his head is what allows Scott as a first responder to know at any point the quickest way to get from where he is to any other location in the city of Richardson, okay? So guys, just like that, this morning's text, it's going to seem a little technical, but we believe it's important because God has shared us these things. It's going to bring up some tough questions, but it's worth the time to dig into it because it's beneficial, so the first thing I want to look at is who are the elders? Because he says, if you're sick, let him ask the elders, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And so here at Crosspoint Community Church, there's three elders. There's myself and Pastor Ryan and Pastor Lance. Um, and we're the only three elders at this church. But something that's probably significant in this text is that more likely what James was referring to when he said elders, sometimes the Bible uses the word elders that refers to an office, like the office of pastor, a position within the church. Uh, more likely what James meant here was he was talking about the elders being of Jewish things. So before the church existed in Jewish communities, the elders in the Jewish community 
would just be the older men in the church who were spiritually mature. When I say older, I don't mean like 70 and up. I just mean men who are established, who aren't like teenagers. Um, men in the church who are spiritually mature. So most likely what James is saying here is if anyone is sick, he should call the men in the church who are spiritually mature and ask them to pray over him. So when we look at that verse and that, that idea of elders, it's really that simple. And there's three things James gives us when it comes to that prayer. Because the rest of this text, you see that in verse 13 and 14, everything else it's like these really specific instructions of how we should pray over people who are sick. That when someone is sick, when they're physically ill, and we pray over them, what should be involved in that? And what does James recommend we do in that situation? And there's really three things. The first of them is anointing. Let's look at it in verse, uh, verse 14. It says this, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Look at this anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, this makes us ask some kind of questions that we need to look at today. So why oil? Why would, the, why would James say, call for the elders and let them pray over you and anoint you with oil? Why would he say that? Why would he recommend that? And there's three possible reasons James could be saying that. Three possible reasons James could be recommending that the elders pray over sick people and put oil on them. Um, one of them is that perhaps it was a medical thing, right? That, um, keep in mind, this is 2,000 years ago, and they didn't exactly have a lot of antibiotics and steroids and things like that. And so oil was one of the very few substances they had that was considered to have medicinal properties or effects. So some people look at this text and say, why, did, why, why is James telling the elders to pray and, and rub oil on someone's head? Like, why would he do that? And some people would say, well, it's, it's a medical thing. Um, the, only, the only kind of problem with that interpretation is that it wouldn't make a lot of sense to wait for the elders if that's all the person needed, right? I mean, think about it this way, guys. Like, um, let's just do it this way. Kids, are you still listening? So I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you were, your stomach was hurting really bad. You had like a really, really bad stomach ache. And your parents called the, your small group leader and they said, hey, can you guys come over and pray over Jackson or whoever it is and, um, and bring some medicine with you? That'd be great. Right? You would be thinking, why don't you give me the medicine right now? Right? Because your stomach hurts now, not when they get here. So the idea that they just brought oil just for the sake of medicinal reasons is probably not it. Um, because if that were the case, the parents would have administered that and not waited on someone else to do it. Um, now, it might have been more of a gesture, like just like if someone comes over to pray over you, they might bring you like a bowl of soup or something like that. So there may have been a reason for that, but most likely it wasn't medical. Another thought behind this is that maybe the oil was sacramental. And I know that's a big word, especially on a Sunday where we've got four-year-olds in here. But I want to talk about that real quick. The word sacramental. Sacraments are basically this. The sacraments of the church are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Sacraments are physical practices we do that have a spiritual meaning and a spiritual effect or result. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. When we baptize someone, we don't believe at this church, that the actual water, right, has, does anything spiritually. That the, just the act of getting someone wet in baptism and bringing them back up out of the water 
We don't believe there's anything magical or mystical happening in the physical part of that, in the water, right? We believe that in order to be saved, in order to be in right standing with God, it's about two things, belief and repentance. That Jesus said, if anyone would come to me, he must believe, right? And he must repent. He must turn from his old way of life. So being baptized, the act, the physical act in and of itself does not bring about or produce salvation or right standing with God. But at the same time, God does use the physical act of baptism to maintain and strengthen and give us confidence in our faith. In fact, we might say it like this, that although baptism does not actually save us and taking the Lord's Supper does not save us, it is belief that saves us, but part of believing in Jesus and trusting him is being baptized and taking the supper. That if someone were to say they believed in Jesus but refused to be baptized and refused to take the supper, one would question, do they really believe and trust Jesus because that is exactly what he's told us to do. So while those sacraments in and of themselves, the physical act doesn't bring about salvation, God does use this physical thing to create a spiritual effect. Does that make sense? So some people would say that's what's happening here, that the oil was sacramental, that, that the oil wasn't magical, but by anointing someone's head with oil, God was using that oil to bring about a miraculous healing over the person that was sick. Some may believe that, and if, if someone in this church believed that, that would be fine. Um, as a church, we don't typically lean that direction on this issue because this is only one of two times in the New Testament where this anointing with oil is even mentioned. So we're not going to like put a whole lot of stock in that when it's something that's just mentioned a couple times in these real small instances. Um, we don't believe that it's a sacramental thing, that God would actually use the oil to heal someone. Um, what we tend to believe at Cross Point is the third option, which is that it's symbolic. Um, that Think about Old Testament, because although anointing with oil is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, it's mentioned hundreds of times in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what they would do if there was a king or a priest or someone appointed to a very specific role or office, part of what they would do is that they would pray over that person, that person who was about to be king or about to be a priest, and they would anoint that person with oil. And what that meant, that oil on their head, was symbolic of saying, God, we're setting this person apart for a special reason. And so our belief in this text is that when, when James is saying anoint them with oil, he's basically saying pray over the sick person and really ask God to take special notice of them. That rubbing oil on, their, on, on someone's head in the Jewish culture meant kind of setting them aside, kind of lifting them up to the Lord, saying please take special Notice and attention of this person in his illness. So what does that look like here at Crosspoint? Well, we're probably, if you call the elders or one of your small group leaders, they're probably not going to bring oil with them. Um, they might, and if they do, that's fine. We're not opposed to that. Uh, but because in our culture, that's not a common known thing of setting someone aside and lifting them up, it's probably not a recommendation that we're going to follow to the T in James. So I hope that makes sense of that idea of anointing. But we do believe that when, you, when we pray for someone who's sick, that we are anointing them. Even though we're not using oil, we are doing that thing. We are saying, maybe by laying hands on them, we would say, God, would you, would you be mindful 
and attentive of this person? Would your ear and your eyes be keen and aware towards what's going on? And would you please heal them? So in that sense, we are laying hands on them. We are anointing them. We're asking God to pay special attention to that person. So anointing is the first thing. The second thing is faith. Now this is, again, this is not always the easiest thing to talk about. Because let's just be really honest. Kids, are you listening? Okay, this is for you guys and the adults. And I want you to do this. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever prayed for someone who's sick, that God would heal them, that God would physically take away their illness and make them better, and he didn't seem to answer that prayer the way you wanted. It's just about every hand in the room, right? But James is saying right here that the prayer of faith will save the one who was sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So you see that verse saying that the prayer of faith will raise up the one who is sick, but then you see these instances where we do pray those things and we have faith that the Lord can do it and the person isn't healed and it makes you go, well, what is this? Why does it happen that way? And one of the reasons I want to address this is because there, there are some people who believe that any time that happens, it's a result of lack of faith. Right? That there are some teachings in our culture that would say, anytime you pray over someone who's sick and they're not healed, it must mean that there was a deficiency in your faith. So I wanna address that, that belief and that idea. So let's just, let's just phrase it in this question like this. Is sickness always a result of a lack of faith? Is sickness always a result of lack of faith? And I wanna answer that very emphatically with this. <laughs> Figured if you like the office, you'd appreciate that. And if you don't like the office, you should. Um, so, absolutely not, guys. Here at Crosspoint, we, we do not believe um, this idea that anytime someone's sick, it's a result of the lack of faith, that, that we don't believe this idea that if we would have prayed harder or believed more or, or deepened our belief or somehow like bolstered our faith in that prayer, that then God would have healed, right? That's, that's not what we believe here because there's several problems with that. And we're going to look at just a few of them. We, we could go on about this. But under that belief, there's these, there's these ideas that conflict with that so heavily. One, you look at Paul's thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this idea that he says, I asked God three times to take away the thorn in my flesh, which almost everyone unanimous, unanimously believes his thorn in the flesh was some sort of physical ailment, probably with his eyes, that Paul had something physically wrong with him. And he says, I asked the Lord three times, God, please take this away. And then he said, the Lord responded to me. And he did not say, no, Paul, you, haven't, you don't have enough faith. That's not what he said. He said, no, my power is made perfect in your weakness. He said, I'm going to leave that thing on you. I'm going to choose not to heal you of that physical ailment because it's good for you to learn to rely on me through that physical difficulty. And so if nothing else, you have at least this one time, and we could look at some others, where God chooses not to physically heal someone when there's something wrong with them 
because it's part of his will not to. Because there's a bigger thing at play than just that person's physical health and well-being. The second problem with this idea that maybe if we just prayed hard enough, none of us would ever be sick, is that the apostles are all dead. (laughs) Not much elaboration there, right? Like, if you really believe that, then you have to reckon with the idea that no one in the past 2,000 years has really had the kind of faith God has hoped for. Because they're all dead. Right? So that's another reason this, this idea of just having enough faith means we'll get whatever we ask for doesn't square. And then thirdly, look at Jesus' prayer in the garden. This is kind of what I want to present to you as a better way. that We don't look at this verse as, as God saying, look, if you'll just have enough faith, God will do whatever you ask. We believe that's true if it's according to his will. Just like Jesus' prayer in the garden. Right? He's about to go to the cross and he says, Father, if there's another way, please let this cup pass from me. He's about to be nailed to a cross and die. He knows that great suffering is on the horizon. And he says, God, if there's another way to avoid this, please let it be. But then he says this, but not my will, but yours be done. And so with any prayer we pray, including a prayer for physical healing, it always ought to be either implicitly or explicitly said and stated and known in our minds that not my will but yours be done. That God, we do ask you to heal this person, but at the end of the day, we're not after my will, but God's will to be done in that situation or in any other situation. Guys, faith is not a tool for manipulating God's will but an ability to trust his will. God does not give us faith as a tool to manipulate his will, but as an ability to trust in his will in all things. So if he's not saying that, if James isn't saying that every single time someone's sick, if we have enough faith, we'll be healed, what is he saying? Well, one, I want to submit to you this, that it's pretty clear that we should involve our community in our prayer needs. I mean, it seems obvious, right, that James is saying, if someone is sick, if there's a need there, bring some others into that. He uses the word elders, which, like we said, might mean the office, but it more likely means just leaders of spiritually mature people in the church, that if you're sick, bring others into that. And I want you to notice where the initiative is on that. That James places the initiative on the person or the family of the sick person. Because it can be, it can be tempting in our church to... If something becomes wrong with us and people don't rush to our attention the way we think they should, that we become bitter and upset about what didn't happen. And I just want to challenge you with that, that at least in this text, James says, look, if there's something wrong with you, be okay with asking for help. Ryan and I have talked about this so much, about how we just, in the Rockwall culture, we don't like asking for help. We don't like admitting weakness. We like to believe that we are completely self-sufficient on our own, right? That we've got this, that we have it covered. And we don't like the idea of, man, I've got a need. Things are difficult. I need to ask someone to come near to me, to, to, to come into this and help and pray over us during this time. But that's exactly what James is telling us to do in this situation, We also believe that God 
through prayer does something he otherwise wouldn't. So I don't want to swing too far on this and say that, that, that God won't ever heal someone because it says he will. It says that there's going to be times that we pray over someone who's sick and God would miraculously heal them of a physical ailment. And so we need to believe that and we need to ask God for that. And we need to embrace the idea that although God's will is set and we're not trying to change that, at the same time, through prayer, God does things that he otherwise would not have done. Right? I mean, that, that's what the scripture is teaching here, that if you pray, God would heal this person. That through our prayers, God is going to do things that he would not have done had we not prayed. And so there's an encouragement to pray and to bring others into that. And then the last element of this is confession. So James says he ought to call the elders and the faith will heal him. And then look on in chapter, verse 16, he says this, or sorry, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This is the second half of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So, James links the idea of illness and healing to sin and confession. Now, I'm just saying this again. I'm not going to play the Michael Scott clip again, but if we were to ask the question, is every time someone's sick, is that a result of sin? The answer is, again, obviously emphatically no. Not every sickness is a result of sin. But if you look at James, it, it is sometimes. Sometimes it is. Sometimes God might make you physically sick to get your attention about a sin in your life. You see that in the book of 1 Corinthians when we don't know exactly what's going on, but people were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But some because they had sinned and God was disciplining them with illness that eventually led to their death because they did not repent. Now, I don't believe that was, that was a death of God's condemnation. I believe it was a death of their God disciplining them, God getting their attention, right? So, this idea of that there might be times that we're sick because God's trying to get our attention about sin or something bad in our lives. There's a psalm that um, correlates to this too that also connects the idea of confession and healing going together. Psalm 34, 2 through 3 says this, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, listen to this, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So the psalmist is saying, like, when I had, when I had hidden sin in my heart and I was silent about it, I didn't confess that, my bones were wasting away. That was eating at me even on a physical level. Kids, are you guys listening? I want you to guys think about a time maybe that you've told a lie to your parents or you've done something wrong and you knew it was wrong 
and it was bothering you that you were hiding that? Has anyone ever felt this? Raise your hand if you felt this, that you, you knew you did something wrong and you were hiding it, but it made you feel really bad inside, right? That's what the psalmist is saying here, that when I, when I tried to bury and cover up and hide my sin and not confess it to God and to others, it ate away at me. There's one theologian that said it like this, that sin grows in the dark, but people don't. That's R.A. Lewis, which is Ryan Lewis. One of the things we realized is um, if you want to be a great theologian, the first step is just to start going by your first initials, right? C.S. Lewis, J.I. Packer, J.R. Stott, D.A. Carson. I could go on, right? Apparently that's the first thing you need to do, so decided to make Ryan a theologian today. R.A. Lewis right there. Sin grows in the dark, but people don't. Guys, Ryan says this all the time. It's just this idea that when we, when we have sin and we cover it up and we bury it and we don't make it known, it grows. And as it grows, it affects us on lots of levels. It affects us spiritually. It will affect our social lives. It can even affect us physically, whether that's through the turmoil of holding it in in our conscience or through God making us physically sick to get our attention and get that sin up to the surface where it can be dealt with. Sin grows in the dark, but people don't. So that's James' instruction. It's, it's how he tells us to deal with someone who's sick and asking for prayer. That if someone is ill and calls the elders, calls the body to pray for them, that in that prayer there ought to be anointing, setting that person aside, saying, God, give special attention to them. There ought to be faith, really believing and trusting that God can heal him. And also trusting that if God doesn't, that his will is better than ours. And then there's confession. That there ought to be some element of, man, if you're sick and you're not getting better, man, is there, is there some sin in your life? And that's not necessarily saying that's why you're sick, but it could be. And that's just a good thing to do anyways, right? To ask each other, is there some sin in your life that you've buried and covered up that you're hiding from anyone else that you need to get that to the surface and confess that and make that known so we can fight against that thing together. And those are the three things James gives us for recommendations as we're praying for someone who's physically sick. And then he does this thing at the end where he gives us the example of Elijah. And I think it's so easy to miss what James is saying here. He says this at the very end. He says, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. And it's, it's tempting to read that and think, yeah, man, Elijah was awesome, right? He was almost as awesome as Scott Gordon, right? I mean, this was, this was a great dude. He, he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord withheld rain for three and a half years, and it, and then he prayed again, and then there was nothing but rain. It kind of makes you wonder if someone's been doing that in the DFW area, right? Like this huge drought, and now it won't stop raining. Like maybe someone's to blame for that. But it's easy to look at that, that, that illustration James gives and go, man, like Elijah's awesome, and just kind of put him up on a pedestal and think, if only we had the faith of Elijah. But James's intent, I want you to see this, it's the exact opposite of that. He's not saying, look how great Elijah was and what he was able to do through prayer. He says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He's saying Elijah was no different than you. He was just a normal dude 
a nature just like ours. He's doing it to highlight not the importance of the prayer, but prayer, but the importance of prayer. Not the person who's praying, but praying in itself, that there is great power in prayer. He's not trying to highlight the person, but the act of prayer itself. He's trying to call our attention to the idea that, especially now under the new covenant, we have complete and unrestricted access. Guys, if you read the Old Testament, when Elijah lived, access to God was not what it is today. And if you look at what all people had to do to have access to the Lord, the fact that true access to God was only, only really happened in the Holy of Holies, which the high priest, one person, went in once a year, that that's the same level of access you and I get to enjoy every single day. And I think part of what James is saying here, but given this example of Elijah, is like, you don't realize how good you have it. And we as adults, we, we fill out all the time about our kids, don't we? Like, I was thinking last night we took Jackson to um, something fun in the Dallas area, and I was just on the way there thinking about all the crazy stuff that there is for kids these days. Man, I'm going to sound old. Kids these days, man. Think about it, though. Like, right here in Rockwall, if you were to say, what can we do fun for the kids today? Well, there's laser tag, right? Take, anyone play laser tag that's over 35 no? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? Laser tag, right? There's indoor go-karts, right? And there's escape rooms. And that's just in one building <laughs> in Rockwall, right? There's bumper boats. There's six flags, which we had six flags growing up, but that was it, right? Here in Dallas, there's probably like 12 to 20 water parks. There's these giant playscapes. Like, when I was a kid, if you wanted to go to a playscape, it was no bigger than the stage, and you didn't get to go there often because that meant your parents had to eat at McDonald's, Right? And so that, wasn't, that was not something that was going to happen on a regular basis. But now they have these whole rooms that are nothing but playscapes, and you don't even have to eat McDonald's to go there. You've got these trampoline parks, right? Every time we take Jackson to Urban Air, I'm like, where was this when I was a kid? Like a whole room full of trampolines, flat ones, sideways ones, angles ones, foam pits, like Go have fun, right? It's like there's so much stuff for kids. And part of us, we look at that and go, if you guys complain about being bored, that's ridiculous, right? You have no excuse for being bored. There is tons and tons and tons of stuff that you get to do that you get to take advantage of. And I think that's a little bit of what James is saying in this text is that like Elijah was a man just like ours. But, and unlike Elijah, we have complete unrestricted access to the throne of God through the cross, right? That we live in a time post-cross. We live in a time that we understand that when Jesus went before us into the Holy of Holies, into the true temple, made the perfect sacrifice, was raised up so that we, like him, could die and be raised again and share in his new life, that God has opened up a way, the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two, top to bottom, giving us complete, unrestricted access to God in prayer. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to bring a pigeon and kill it first. Complete, unrestricted access because of the cross. Hebrews says it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... 
by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. There's so much we could unpack in those verses, but let's just touch on a couple of them real quick. He says that we have confidence to enter the holy places, that when you and I pray to the Lord, it's as though we were a high priest in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement coming into the Holy of Holies. That when we pray, we are entering into the full and real presence of God himself in our prayers, complete unrestricted access. How? By the blood of Jesus. Not because we had to kill a goat or a lamb or a pigeon to be able to pray, but because Jesus has died and made a way for us to have complete unrestricted access to God. The writer of Hebrews says, because of that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I know we spent a lot of time in these details, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees here because that's essentially what James is saying, that if you're happy, go to the Lord in prayer. Take advantage of the unrestricted access you have. If you're happy, sing songs to the Lord of prayer. If you're not doing that for the struggling, take that to the Lord of prayer. Enter the Holy of Holies and set that before the God of all creation when you're having a hard time. And if someone is sick, Bring the elders together, bring the community together, and ask God in the Holy of Holies to heal that person. Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. He's encouraging us to, in all things, take advantage of the access we have to the Lord in prayer. You guys pray with me. We'll move into the Lord's Supper time. God, thank you for this book of James, for everything we have learned and are learning from it. Um, God, I pray that if nothing else this morning, we would just be reminded of how great a thing of it is that we have that kind of access to you, that when we pray, it's a big deal that we can come before you like that. And we thank you for Jesus, for his blood, his sacrifice, tearing the veil and opening that path of access for us. It's his name we pray, amen.